Choir, thank you. Dr. Al, I appreciate the amen very much. Um, I'm not uh, always attuned to amen. I should be, and I apologize to the congregation. I'm not. My thought was when the choir finished this morning, just saying, wow. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 6. You have in your worship folder this morning a sheet that looks like this. That will give you something of an outline. Uh, We'll take part of this this morning, and we'll come back to it in weeks to come. But what I want to do this morning is look at uh, God's person and God's program. So that will give you some idea of where we're going. And if you want to keep this in your Bible, it will... uh, You'll have it for next week as well. God's person and God's program. Pray with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Enable us to do just that, to hallow your name in this time of worship. And may God the Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Lord instructed his disciples to pray at least in two different ways, and I think far beyond that, but two in particular that I'd mention as we begin the message this morning. They listened to him as he prayed. He ministered to them, and in that ministry he prayed. And so he taught them by example. They heard what he said, how he said it, so he taught them by his pattern by his example but then there came a day when the disciples and this is recorded in Luke chapter 11 they asked teach us to pray and what we think of as the Lord's prayer and I hope that you will keep in mind some of the things I said about this in a previous message last week uh, it might as well be called, the, as well be called, the disciples' prayer. Uh, there are some things in this that Jesus said that uh, he could not have prayed himself, so it was not something that he gave to his disciples to, just as a matter of routine, just as a matter of rote, repeat every time they got together. Uh, he, I believe, was giving some things, uh, some particular areas, and I've mentioned those. I've used that by way of our outline uh, for this text. But he taught them by pattern, by example. He taught them by precept. They asked the question, teach us to pray. And so he gave them principles. He gave them precepts. And I believe that these are things that uh, uh, he would have us to incorporate, not 
verbally all the time, but there's nothing wrong with repeating the Lord's Prayer. I'm, I'm afraid the other week I gave the impression that there was something wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. There's not. But in your own prayer life, in your private, personal prayer life, I do not believe Jesus intended that we just go uh, by rote through these things. I think there are some areas here that he gives to us, and he wants us to pray about these areas. So that's where I'm coming from here. Uh, And uh, the first one uh, is his person, God's person. Chapter 6, verse 9, pray then in this way or in this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There are two parts I would like to suggest to you here. There is a relationship, and that's first. And then there is a responsibility, that's second. That's all in this first verse, verse 9. Think with me about the relationship first. He begins, our Father. I want Wake Chapel Church people to be crystal clear. This is the exclusive prerogative of those who are in Christ. Praying, our Father, is the exclusive prerogative of those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you note in our text, there are no singular pronouns here. We are part of a family. The word our is a pronoun of partnership. Our Father. I'll come back to that thought in a moment. Who art in heaven? Do you think often of the fact that our Father's in heaven? Do you think often of the fact that we are strangers and pilgrims here? Or have we become so settled on planet earth, in our homes, in our jobs, in our routine, have we become so settled here that we really begin to think of this as home? Thank God, what a day that will be. This is not our home. It makes no difference how many places you got, mountains, coast, Fuquay, uh, wherever. This is not our home. Aren't you glad for that? No matter what level of grandeur in the place where you Think of as your abode. No matter what level, it's, it, it, it pales in comparison even to our finite minds thinking about heaven. This world is not our home. Our Father is in heaven. Heaven is our home. A couple of other things we should observe here. God is the creator of all. But he's the father only of those who have trusted in Jesus, his son. I don't doubt that somebody is going to challenge me about this. That's all right. I'm just simply going to say the universal fatherhood of God is a myth. How many times have you heard people say, maybe you've even thought, God's everybody's father. May I say to you, he's not. He's the father of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The universal fatherhood of God is a myth. It's found nowhere in the scriptures. Nowhere at all. 
Father of only those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus to be their Savior. He is our Father. One of the things that, that to me, when I think about this, it just jumps out of the Bible to me. And it's convicting to me. <clears throat> Do you realize that having one Father, having the same Father makes all of us brothers and sisters? Are we confining our thinking to those who have the same earthly father? Well, there's, there's a measure of truth to that, but we need to be discerning in our thinking, I believe. God is our heavenly father if we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. That means we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I have believed... For a long, long time, there are higher standards in the spiritual family. There's more involved in the spiritual family than even the physical family. To be a brother or a sister with someone because they are in Christ, I believe means infinitely more than Someone with whom you have simple blood ties on this earth. Now, I don't mean to, to, to denigrate that. I wish I could see my brother again. My brother's in heaven. Actually, I've got two brothers in heaven. So I don't mean to denigrate that. I'm just trying to put things in their proper place. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ means enormously more And that individual, that brother or that sister in Christ, ought to mean at least as much as my physical brother or my physical sister or yours. At least that much. And candidly, I believe more. As I suggested moments ago, the word that's used here is our. There are no singular pronouns here. This is a pronoun, as I said earlier, of partnership. We are brothers and sisters in Christ having the same Father. And then look at that word Father, our Father. Have you ever looked at old pictures, family pictures? Once in a while, I enjoy going in our history room and looking at some of the pictures that are there and if you've never done it it's worthwhile doing it's a hoot too by the way but anyway that's another matter uh you gotta go in there and look and do you know what you can look at pictures that were taken that are in the history room that are 50 60 years old and someone who's discerning can pick out your mother or your daddy in some of those pictures. You know why? Because you resemble them. That's reasonable, isn't it? You resemble them. And now the question. 
There are no pictures of Jesus that have any kind of validity to them at all. So we cannot talk about having a physical resemblance with Jesus in terms of, uh, you know, your facial qualities, uh, your hairline, or whatever. But our prayer ought to be, oh, to look and be more like my Father in heaven. I'm convinced in my own heart that, that there, there are saints who, who wish to be more like their dad on this earth than they do our, their heavenly Father in heaven. And God help all of us when we come to that. To want to look like him. There's the relationship. There's a responsibility. And that responsibility is to hallow. Again, verse 9. Hallowed be thy name. The word that's used here and is rendered hallow is the same word we get our word holy from. The English word holy comes from this very same word. And the thought behind this particular word in the original text is setting apart something or someone solely for God's use. That's what it means. Setting apart something or someone solely for God's use. You remember the objects? You read about them in the Old Testament. Objects in the temple, they were dedicated. They were hallowed. They were set apart for the worship of God in the temple in the Old Testament. Christian people today are called holy for that same reason. Hallowed. We should be hallowed. Set apart for God's use. This is actually an appeal to set the name of God apart from any and every other name. To hold that name in the reverence and the honor and the glory. And to exalt that name above all else. Our hymnal has a a wealth of wonderful hymns based on solid biblical theology. A personal preference, and that's all it is, a personal preference. I love to sing in a special way. The the, the, the hymns like holy, holy, holy. A little different time, a little different meter, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I enjoy those hymns. I think they direct our attention the way our attention needs to be directed when we come to worship. Our attention needs to be directed to God. Not I got a pain in the back. Pardon me. If you got a pain in the back, I'll pray with you for it. But when we come to worship, the attention ought to be focused on heaven and not on earth. It means 
this word hallow means that his name should be given all of the reverence that his character and his nature demand. We talk about hallow, hallow be thy name. It behooves us to think a little bit about what that name is and what that name represents before we try to do that. To hallow his name. His name stands for all that he is. It stands for his person. It stands for his character. Everything that he is, his name stands for that. Now that leads to a question. And the question is, how do we hallow his name? And I think it's a good question. Martin Luther, in his great catechism, raised the question, how is God's name hallowed? And then he gave some uh, basic overarching answer, that kind kind of answer that you would expect in a catechism. His answer was, when our life and our doctrine are truly Christian. And that's a good answer. It lacks some of the, spe- the specifics, but that's part of the catechism. I would like to be more specific. In our own lives, how can we set apart, how can we hallow the Lord's name? We're supposed to do that. The question is how? Well... To my mind, and perhaps to yours, some things suggest themselves immediately. And I begin with negative. We must be careful not to profane God's name with our speech. To me, that means a whole lot. We avoid swearing. We avoid taking his name in vain. You know, folks, um, the apostle in the New Testament, remember it was said to him, thy speech betrayeth thee. I wonder... You know, there's a good sense that I like when, when our speech betrays us. You're talking in a conversation and, and uh, uh, someone says, you're a Christian, aren't you? You know why they said that? Because your speech betrayed you in a good sense. But at the same time, may God deliver us from having our speech betray us in a bad sense. I said this on one occasion and was taken to task for it. That's all right. That's all right. I made the comment that I thought all too generally Christian people use slang, which has as its roots the name of God. Jeez, something doesn't go right. Where'd that come from? From Jesus Christ. 
may I just simply say, I believe in my heart, Christian people need to be careful about the slang expressions that we use. So, how are we more specific? One, we are careful not to profane God's name by our speech. Second, we reverence him with acts of public and private worship. Personally, I consider, and I know somebody's going to say, yeah, but that's because you're a preacher. No, I learned this before I ever had any thought of being a preacher. I believe we reverence the Lord in our public worship, in our private worship. And it's worship. It's setting him apart in our worship that hallows, that reverences, that sets apart his name. We do that in our worship. How do we do that in our worship? In our hymns, in our praying, in our gifts, in our fellowship one with another. We do those things in the worship service. We set apart his name. We hallow his name. Third, and these are just three that came to my mind. There's a whole host more. I haven't even scratched the surface. But the third one I see is we reverence or we hallow God's name when we model. Listen to me. When we model God's loving forgiveness to ourselves. We are wonderfully marvelously, gloriously, incomparably forgiven fully by our Heavenly Father when we come to trust Him. Therefore, I wish I had a suitable explanation for why it is that it is so hard for Christian people to forgive one another. Don't really understand that. Why is it so hard for us to forgive somebody else? No matter what they've done. Because let me tell you what. They have never done anything to you like you have done to God. Never. Nor could they ever. Why? Because God's sovereign. You can sin against me. I, that ain't no big deal. Excuse my English. That isn't any big deal. I'm just a human being. Same for you. Why can't we as human beings who have been forgiven of sins far greater than anyone can do to us, why can't we just forgive other people and go on down the road and forget it? Does that make sense to anybody but me? Where's an amen when I need it, Al? Why can't we forgive? We have been forgiven. I'll mention this again. I, some of you will remember my mentioning this more than once. There's a brother who's at home with the Lord today. I don't even know what the issue was. I have no idea. And, and frankly, I try not to get involved in things like that. 
You're aggravated with somebody? I don't want to know why. Just get it straightened out. Gentlemen, remember this church for a long time. Walking down this hall one Sunday morning. And he got down to my office and he came in. And he said, Preacher, you know, walking down this hall, people in this church wouldn't speak to me. You want to tell me why? I didn't ask him. Why can't we forgive? I believe that sanctifies God's name. I believe that hallows God's name. I believe that sets apart God's name. When we do the same thing that God has done for us, when we do that for other people, that sets apart His name. That's one way of hallowing God's name. Just why it's so hard, I don't know. Very quickly, I want to take up God's program. That's His person. It's a few thoughts on His person. God wants us to pray having these things in our hearts when we pray. Think about God's person. I have mentioned before, when we come to our prayer life, when we come to our prayer time, uh, it's most, I think, kind, whatever word. It's, It's hallowing his name. When I don't come to pray to God with my needs first, but for his needs. His person, that his name be hallowed. That we remember we have a, a, a familial relationship with him. That we remember that we speak of that when we pray. But we come to God's program, and there are two things involved here. One of them is fairly complicated, and uh, I'll try to make it reasonably understandable. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer for God's sovereignty. This is a messianic prayer. And I have said before, if we as a church family understand this is a messianic prayer, then each of us will understand far more than most of those who stand in churches across the world and repeat this prayer every morning. They don't have any idea it's a messianic prayer. It's prayed as a matter of rote. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And, and, and so many of them, I, I, I fear, don't have a clue on what they're praying when they say, Thy kingdom come. What kingdom? Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I have four or five references for sake of time. I will not use all of them this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 12. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you and uh, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be a father to him, and when he, he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, obviously this is a reference to Solomon, David and Solomon, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, when I, uh, whom I removed from before you. And then notice verse 16. And your house, talking to the nation Israel, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established, how long? Forever. Now, I, if we had time, I could go to Isaiah, uh, I could go to Zechariah, and, and I could go to Matthew again in the New Testament, I could go to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, and establish the same thing. God's kingdom is being prayed for in what we think of as the Lord's Prayer. It is a kingdom that will be established on this earth. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's not just a Christmas passage. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. And when our Lord is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says to pray, thy kingdom come. Whose kingdom? God's kingdom come on this earth. I wish I had more time to spend on this, and at another time I may come back to the kingdom, thy kingdom come and talk about it a little bit more. But the last one here is the most difficult of the ones that we look at this morning, that is, thy will be done. What I'm about to say will be new to some, but I trust that you'll bear with me and give it some thought. Study your Bible. Theologians have long made what I believe to be a valid distinction in this area. They speak of two wills. Thy will be done. They speak of two wills. Dr. Chafer, who was the head of the seminary from which I graduated, speaks of his directive and his permissive will. His directive and his permissive will. His directive will includes within its scope the doctrines of decree, defined degree, election, predestination, and coordination. And at this point, I'd like for you to take your Bible and turn to Isaiah 46 with me, please. Isaiah 46, there are two verses. And I believe this is a clear example, illustration. Choose your words. 46, 10, 11. This is his directive will. It is an example of his directive will. 46, 10, Isaiah. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, and surely I will do it. I don't know how that could be any plainer. He says, look at it. I have planned it, and surely I will do it. Now, that's the eternal God saying that. And if that can't be depended on, then God can't be depended on in John 3.16 either. 
I have planned it, I will do it. His directed will. But there is, the theologians tell us, a second area, and that they refer to this as permissive will. And in the permissive will of God, hear me now, in the permissive will of God, God is seen as allowing man his own choice, which might merely be second best, or what even might be evil. Permissive will. Now, you say, well, uh, sure, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Well, turn to Psalm 106, verse 15 with me, please. Psalm 106, verse 15. The passage refers to Israel. 106 of Psalm, verse 15. Listen to these words. He gave them their request. Israel prayed for some things. And would you look? He gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. What they were praying was not God's best. God allowed Israel to have what they wanted, which was not his best. The nation was supposed to be theocratic. They wanted a king that they could see like everybody else. And I think that's one of the things he allowed them to have, which he didn't intend for them to have. So we are told by reputable Bible expositors and theologians God's directive will determines what will come to pass. There's nothing, there's not one iota outside of God's directive will. But they see this other matter of his permissive will. Things which do not always please God take take place in his permissive will. May I further illustrate this? Have you ever done anything that didn't please God? Well, if you haven't, you're in the wrong company. Because the rest of us have. I believe that is a further illustration of the permissive will of God. He allowed us to do something which did not please him. But that was not in his directive will because his directive will will not be overstepped even one particle. I believe, dear friends, the theologians are correct, the Bible expositors are correct, when they say that you can divide God's will, thy will be done, into two areas. Directive, I've given you scripture for that, and permissive. Now, I know that that elicits questions. And I'm going to have David Brown stand out in front of the church and answer them. <laughs> It's a serious subject. I shouldn't be frivolous. I don't mean to be. Would you think about our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Think about, do I hallow his name? Do I set apart his name? 
in my life, my worship? Do I pray thy kingdom come? There's a brother in this church. He may be too busy to stop and visit with me. But if he comes here for anything and walks down the hallway, it's always, maybe today, preacher. I believe he's praying, thy kingdom come. You pray that? You're looking for Jesus to come. You want Jesus to come. Is there something that's got your attention so that you want to get that done tomorrow and you'd rather, if Jesus said, I'm going to come back Monday, would you say to him, would you wait till afternoon till I get this thing done in the morning? Are we praying? Do we want Jesus to come again? Are we praying for his kingdom? Again, there are areas in this, what we speak of as the Lord's Prayer, that Jesus wanted his disciples to incorporate in their prayer life because it was in response to teach us to pray. I want you to pray with me. I'll lead us, but I want you to pray with me. Lord, teach us to pray. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, teach us to pray. The things that you spoke to your disciples, to have them to incorporate into their prayer life, they'd ask, teach us to pray. And this is what you told them. What we think of as the Lord's Prayer doesn't have to be routine and rote. We can take these areas and pray about them. I ask that you'd help us to do that. Help us to be mindful of what you told your disciples about the subject of praying. May that become more important. And may we give more thought to our prayer life than we have in days and weeks and years past. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.